Well, good morning again. That's a great song. I love that song. Uh, I, I have a CD somewhere. I've lost it maybe a dozen years ago. Uh, by Eddie Arnold. Does anyone know who Eddie Arnold even is? Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but singing that song, it's great. I love it. Um, all right. First Samuel. Uh, we, I'm going to pick up right where Emily left off. First Samuel 17, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Someone once said that uh, Christianity is a doctrine as well as a life, but before both of these, it is a story. Christianity is first and foremost about a God who acted in history, even a God who still acts in history uh, because the story's not over yet. We began last week uh, talking about three things that are really important, uh, three things that are central to the life of the church, the, the story of 
God's grace, the human heart, and the call to love. And last week we did kind of an overview of those three from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about the story. Uh, the Bible uh, is a book, right? It's really 66 books, different genres written by different authors in different cultures at different times. And it's tempting to read the Bible as kind of a random collection or even a contradictory collection of distinct books. But in reality, the Bible is, is one book telling one story. The story of a God who created the world, uh, of a people who rejected their God and broke his world, but of a God who has loved us anyway and through Jesus is putting things back together. Jesus is the climax of the story. But of course, seldom do you turn to the end of a book and just read the climax, right? You have to understand the first 200 pages of a novel before you can understand the climax on page 201. And so uh, we, I think, need to understand what we call the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, before we understand the climax in the New. Now, it's not always easy to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate, how these things are connected. You know, what does Jehoshaphat have to do with Jesus? Or what does Babylon have to do with Bethlehem? Or what does Goliath have to do with the gospel? Well, you, you get the point. I, I want to give you, I, I've been tempted to, to skip this part and jump straight into 1 Samuel 17 because I love 1 Samuel 17, but I'm not going to skip it. Uh, I want to give you four ways that the story as a whole from Genesis to Revelation holds together uh, before looking at one particular Old Testament story, right? So I just want to give kind of an overview. How, how does this whole book hold together? How does this story hold together before jumping into an example of that in 1 Samuel 17. So four ways, and they're going to be really brief. And the first is, is pretty obvious, right? Uh, the same God is at work throughout, right? There's, there's one God from Genesis to Revelation who's at work. The second is it's the same people of God. Now, uh, there are lots of differences, of course, you, you know, lots of differences between Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and us. Uh, and someone might want to argue with me on this point. But, but at the very least, we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Okay? And uh, ultimately, the Old Testament story focuses in on one particular people, the children of Abraham. When we turn to the New Testament, we're told that uh, in Christ, all who believe are children of Abraham. Which means both the Old Testament and the New Testament focus on the children of Abraham, right? The same people from Genesis to Revelation. So we have the person of God, we have the people of God, uh, and then we have the promises of God. Uh, all of Scripture, after Genesis chapter 3, is this progressing, progressive outworking of the promises of God. And so sometimes this is called redemptive history, right? Scripture is the history of God progressively working out His redemptive plan, fulfilling his redemptive promises. And so if, if you were to make kind of a narrative plot diagram, right, moving from creation to the fall uh, to Jesus and then to the new creation, uh, most passages would fit somewhere on that diagram somehow as a part of the outworking of God's plan, as a part of the fulfillment of God's promises step by step by step. 
And so the person of God remains the same, right? The people of God are essentially the same, the children of Abraham. The promises of God are progressively worked out through Scripture. And then you, and then you see the pattern of God's work. Yeah, they're all Ps, right? The person, the people, the promises, and the pattern, right? Um, the pattern of God's work, right? God works in the same way again and again and again. Uh, so not only do you have stories which sort of fit somewhere on that plot diagram, right? But many of the stories, as you read through the scriptures, are also kind of the whole story in miniature, right? So you begin to see patterns, ways that God works consistently in history, patterns that are ultimately fulfilled in the cross and in the resurrection. And so the, the person of God, the people of God, the promises of God, the pattern of God's work, right? There's one story uh, you know, and, and of course, most stories have many chapters, uh, different scenes, multiple characters, multiple themes. Some stories, there's so much going on, the only thing that holds it together is how the author brings it all together in the end, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. That's how it is with Scripture, right? Yes, there's a lot going on. Yes, you don't understand it half the time. But there is this progression. There is this movement forward toward a climax in Jesus, in the cross, in the resurrection, and in his return. Various themes, various patterns, various promises, all weaved together throughout and then coming together in Christ. Okay, so we have the, the person, the people, the promises, and the pattern. Now, some of you I lost uh, a while ago. Your eyes glazed over when I said plot diagram, if not before. Um, so here's what we're going to do, right? We're going we're gonna to leave that, and uh, we're going to look at one particular Old Testament story, and we're going to see how this works out. Uh, we're going to see the, the story of the gospel as it's worked out in the story of the Old Testament, and we're going to see that in the story of David and Goliath. And we're going to do that in part because it's familiar and in part because it's awesome. <laughs> you can see uh, in your bulletin on the back, there's an outline it's a simple outline. We're just going to go through the characters of this story, right? We're going to look at Goliath, uh, the, the giant. We're going to look at Saul, the king. We're going to look at David, the shepherd boy, Israel, the army of the living God. And it, it's going to be fun. So if I put you to sleep so far, wake up, right? If you have to, stand up and stretch, right? I get it. And uh, let's look at Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines are, have gathered together for war. And Saul and, and the men of Israel had also gathered to fight against them. The Philistines are on one side of a valley, and Israel is on the other side of this valley. And uh, out from the ranks of the Philistine, uh, the Philistine army, you know the story, right? Out from the ranks comes a champion named Goliath of Gath. And this is no ordinary warrior. For one thing, he's, he's kind of tall. Um, it's hard to say actually how tall Goliath was. Uh, it, for one thing, it's hard to know exactly the length of a cubit. Uh, but Goliath was possibly as tall as nine feet, give or take a little. Uh, to put that in perspective, though, because that seems so unrealistic to us, uh, actually the tallest man in recorded history, any guesses, right? Don't worry. Uh, he eight foot 11 inches. His name is Robert Wadlow, eight foot 11. Where did he buy shoes? I don't know. Uh, but um, 
eight foot 11, right? That's not that far off from nine foot. That's not normal, right? But uh, it's not usual, but it's not out of the realm of, of reality. Uh, however tall Goliath was, of course, the point is that he is a big guy. <laughs> He's a giant by any standard, except Robert Wadlow's. And uh, <laughs> Goliath has all the latest military technology, right? He has a bronze helmet. He has a 121-pound male coat. He has a javelin and a spear and a sword. He has a shield-bearer in front of him. He's well-armored and he's well-armed. He's this massive man, and, and he, he's massively armed. In fact, the text says that Goliath's spearhead weighed 14 pounds, which I can't imagine. Uh, the archaeologists have actually found extra-large spearheads. They're, they're really big. They're about this big, and they, you put them next to regular spearheads, and they seem massive. And uh, no joke, archaeologists assume that they were for decoration, because what else would you be doing with a spearhead that weighs 14 pounds? Well, uh, David, uh, well, 1 Samuel seems to suggest something different uh, than decoration. David later compares Goliath to a beast, right? He's like a lion or a bear. And this giant, this beast of a man, comes out and he begins to taunt the people of God. He says, choose a man and let's fight, right? If he kills me, we will serve you. And if I kill him, you will serve us. You'll be our slaves. And Goliath defies the ranks of Israel. And he does this not once, not twice, but for 40 days, every morning and every night. What do we do with Goliath? You know, as Christians, uh, we believe that, that Scripture is God-breathed and that it's applicable uh, and, and sometimes you'll hear people even ask the question, uh, they'll put it like this, what, what are the Goliaths in your life, right? You maybe heard that question. And, and what people mean by that, I think, is something like, what are the really big problems that you have? But, you know, before we try to connect th this story to today, I, I, I actually think we need to do a few things first. And one is we need to look m even more closely at the text and see what is actually going on. What did Goliath's presence represent to Israel? You know, what did his presence in the promised land mean to the people of that day? Goliath's very presence actually meant that God's promises were unfulfilled. God promised his people rest in the promised land, including rest from war. But here is this Philistine seeking to bring Israel into slavery. God, where are you? God, I, I thought you promised us rest in the land, not never-ending battle, not, certainly not slavery again. We left that in Egypt. Goliath's presence means even more than just unfulfilled promises. His presence is a sign of God's curse. In the book of Judges, we see that God leaves the Israel's enemies in the promised land because they had forsaken God and turned to idols. And so the presence of enemies in the land was a part of God's judgment on his people. And slavery to those enemies was often a part of that judgment as well. Goliath is this oppressive force 
who is going to bring death to some and slavery to others. Goliath for Israel is the embodiment of God's curse, slavery and suffering and death. And sometimes people ask, you know, what are the Goliaths in your life? And, and people think about it. What are the big problems I'm facing right now? You know, okay, well, I've got this exam coming up. Okay, no, right? Uh, your exam is not the embodiment of slavery, suffering, and death. Really, it's not. Your exam is not hindering you from enjoying the fullness of the promises of God. Well, then what does? Well, slavery, suffering, and death are slavery to sin, suffering that, that the suffering that sin brings, death which wipes us from the face of the land. What embodies those things for us? What single person more than any other seeks to stop us from entering into the fullness of God's blessings? Satan, the devil the evil one, the roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour, according to Peter. Go, moving from Goliath to death or Goliath to Satan, by the way, that's not, that's not allegorizing. You might be wondering, okay, is that a fair move? Um, it's not allegorizing because we moved from what Goliath represented for Israel, slavery, suffering, and death, uh, to what he represents then for us. We're not, we're not reading those things into the text, but out of it. That's really what Goliath stood for for Israel. As he stood in front of them, he was going to bring them into real slavery or bring them real death and real suffering. And when you think of Goliath, you can think of your slavery to sin, right? Your addictions, your sinful habits, your broken heart. You can think of the many ways you suffer in this life and the fear of death. You can think of the very real personal evil one who, like a lion, wants to take you out, to turn you from your father. The one who uses his lies and temptations and accusations and oppressions until you give in to unbelief and despair. Which is exactly what had happened, isn't it? Think about Saul. It's the next person on our outline, Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. The people of Israel were asking for a king like the nations who would fight their battles for them. It's earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. And, uh, and they were given Saul. And Saul, by the way, looks like a warrior. Uh, scripture says that he's a head taller than every other man, which means he's kind of a giant in his own right. He's uniquely qualified to fight Goliath. When Samuel anoints him back in chapter 10, he's given a mandate to take out the Philistines. That's what Saul was supposed to do. And they become kind of his arch enemy throughout. Where is Saul? As Goliath comes out every morning and every evening and taunts the people of God, where is their king? Where is the one who was anointed to fight for them? Well, he's cowering in his tent. Uh, when Goliath taunts Israel, we're told uh, in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Then later on in verse 24, we're told all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Where's Saul? He's fleeing from Goliath and he's terrified. Why is Saul so afraid? Well, the short answer is Saul is faithless. <laughs> the problem is, maybe in part, that Saul is a head taller than most men. You know, when we have worldly strength, we, whatever that might be, we tend to trust in our strength until somebody stronger comes along. Saul did pretty well when he was the tallest man in the crowd and then steps up Goliath. Saul walks by sight and not by faith. And it's a key theme in the book of Samuel, actually. Uh, early, earlier, First uh, Samuel chapter 16, just the chapter before, chapter 16, verse 7, <clears throat> there's this great verse. It's in another context, but its words fit really well here, uh, eerily well, right? Uh, God says in that context, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Saul doesn't get this. He looks on Goliath's outward appearance. He looks on his own outward appearance. He looks at the resources at his disposal and the task at hand, and he realizes he doesn't have what it takes. Even when David comes... Full of faith, he comes along and offers to fight Goliath. Saul is still full of doubt. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, Saul says to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. You see, Saul can only see with his eyes. But he cannot see with the eyes of faith. And so when, when, when Saul finally resigns to send David, what does he do? He clothes David with his armor. What is Saul doing? Well, among other things, Saul tries to dress David up like Goliath. Same things, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail, a sword. Saul cannot see beyond the horizon of this world, right? He's spiritually blind. So how do you fight power with power? David's brave enough to go out there. Okay, great, but you need, you need, you need your armor. You need to be dressed up just like Goliath if you're going to defeat him. Saul is focused on outward appearance, focused on worldly power and strength. And Saul has completely forgotten his God. You know, why do Saul and his men cower, one writer asks, because they have abandoned the source of courage. No one mentions the Lord for 36 verses until David comes along and mentions him in verse 37 when he says, the Lord will deliver him from Goliath. And only then does Saul kind of weakly say, essentially, great, why don't you and the Lord go do that? Saul and the men of Israel are facing slavery and suffering and death, and they never think that God might be in this. Of course they're afraid. You would be terrified too. They look at Goliath and they tremble. 
And this is where most of us live most of the time. We look at life and we look at our troubles, we look at our difficulties and our trials and our hardships, we look at our sin and our temptations and our struggles, and then we look at our own strength and the resources we have within us, and we despair, and rightly so. Because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, like Saul and Israel, we live life fleeing from our enemy and much afraid. Maybe we try to downplay it. We say, well, our sin's not really that bad. We make light of our suffering. It could be worse, we say. Or we're honest and we despair before the face of Goliath. Which brings us to the one who did not flee the one who did not despair, David. What can we say about David? David is an unlikely hero. David is unlike Goliath and unlike Saul. David is sent to the battlefield not to fight, but to deliver dinner. The chapter before, David was contrasted with his older, taller brother, And David is called the youngest, which can also be translated the smallest. Of eight brothers, David is the smallest. He's the runt. David is not a seasoned warrior, but in the mouth of Saul, he's just a youth. And when Goliath looks on David, he sees not what he expects, a battle-hardened man, but verse 42, a pink-cheeked pretty boy. That's what it says. David is not a warrior. He doesn't even shave yet. How can he be a warrior? He's the hero. He's the champion. A kid with a sling. What does David have that Saul doesn't have? Well, you you know the answer, right? David has faith, for one. David sees life a little bit differently than Goliath and Saul and all of Israel. David realizes that Goliath has not just taunted any old army, but he's defied the armies of the living God. He says that multiple times. In fact, David realizes that Goliath has defied God himself. This battle is not about whether one nation serves another. This is about the honor of God. David says that all may know that there is a God in Israel. That's why he's fighting. That's why he's stepping up. David is not afraid. Why not? David says he's a shepherd who had rescued many a lamb from the lion and the bear. And then in verse 37, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. Why is David not afraid? God will deliver him. He puts it differently when he's talking with Goliath in verses 45 and 46. David says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
pretty cocky for a little kid. Why is David not afraid? Because he comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. His confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in his God. Now, I've got to mention at this point, there's a book by Malcolm Gladwell. It's called David and Goliath. It's actually a pretty good book. Uh, but he gets, he gets the David and Goliath story so amazingly right and yet so tragically wrong at the same time. He, he sees the David and Goliath story as about a misunderstanding of real power. Okay? Uh, why do we assume that the giant will win, he asks. It's a good question, right? Why do we assume the giant will win? Goliath assumes he'll win. Uh, Saul assumes he'll win. All of Israel assumes he'll win, but not David. Gladwell's assessment, however, is that, um, it's, it's pretty detailed, but uh, it, it basically, Goliath is infantry and David is artillery. Of course David would win. In fact, Gladwell says, everyone knew David would win. I don't know where he saw that in the text, but that's what he says, right? Everyone knew David would win. Goliath is hampered down by all this armor and everything else. David runs out there and he has a sling. Of course he's going to beat the guy with the sword. Goliath misjudged. Goliath, Gladwell says, misjudged real power. He might have had a sword, but David had a gun, or at least the 10th century B.C. equivalent of a gun. Well, Gladwell is right that Goliath misjudged real power. That's true. But David puts it a little bit differently. He says, you come to me with a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. David is not relying on his superior technology. He's not relying on uh, his sling. David is relying on the presence of his God. David believes that there is something greater than raw strength, greater than superior technology, greater than Goliath and the whole Philistine army. And so this unlikely hero, full of faith, approaches the giant of slavery and death. And the battle itself takes four whole verses. Four verses. Goliath moves toward David. David puts a stone in his sling and strikes Goliath in the head. He runs over, takes Goliath's sword, and cuts his head right off. David, the shepherd boy, defeats the giant, removes the sign of God's curse, and restores rest to the land. David is like a, a new Adam, taming the wild animals, and subduing the earth, making it hospitable for God's people to dwell in. He's like the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent and remove the curse. When we move to apply the story of David and Goliath, David is not merely every man. David is the anointed king, which in Hebrew is Messiah, and in, in Greek is Christ. He was anointed in chapter 16, and this is his first real act as the anointed one. He defeats the great enemy. 
Well, humanly speaking, slavery and suffering and death are unbeatable enemies. We can't beat the sinfulness of our hearts. We can't escape the suffering of this world. We certainly can't conquer death. But there is one who can. You come at me with a sword, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Of course, if David is an unlikely hero, Jesus is actually more so. The cross is an unlikely victory. At least the sling was a weapon. If David looked weak in comparison to Goliath, Jesus certainly looked weak on the cross. Jesus looked weak compared to death when he died. And who would have thought that you might defeat sin by coming under its murderous power? Who would have thought you would defeat suffering by undergoing suffering? Who would have thought you would defeat death by dying? Not Saul. You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Who would have thought? But Jesus came, like David, full of faith, trusting in his Father's power to the end. Even on the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right, you come at me with sword, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And it is through weakness and even suffering that the victory is won. Jesus died for our sins. But by his power, God raised him from the dead. Jesus rose never to die again because death no longer has dominion over him, Paul says. No slavery, no suffering, no death. Through death, Jesus experienced resurrection victory. Goliath is dead. Right? Worldly strength was defeated through weakness. Death was defeated through death. But there's one more thing in this passage that, that we need to notice. There's one more striking thing that it's kind of easy to overlook. It's interesting, but it's easy to overlook. And it's what happens after Goliath's head is chopped off. Which brings us to our last point about Israel. Uh, the middle of verse 51 into verse 53 tell us this. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. What's going on here? I mean, this whole army has been shaking in their boots for 40 days at Goliath's taunts. But David's act of faith has, has empowered them. His victory has spurred them on. It's the victory that begins the war. And so they go on to chase the Philistines and to plunder their camp. What do we do with this story? How do we apply the story of David and Goliath? There are lots of different things to think about. Um, one is, like David, uh, 
uh, we want to learn to see as God sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart to see beyond what our physical eyes can see, to not, to not limit our thinking to, to the physics and the mechanics of our present experience. We walk by faith and not by sight. So as you think about the struggles in your life, as you think about your sin and temptation, as you think about your suffering and death, are your eyes so focused on the moment, so focused on the trial or the trouble? Have you zoomed in so close that God is no longer in the picture? Do you only see Goliath? Or do you see the Lord of hosts? Second, we need to trust in our victor, our champion. Not David, of course, but Jesus. If you don't believe in him, right, you need to trust in him. If you do believe in him, you need to set your faith more fully on Jesus. He died and rose. He defeated death and entered into life. We are united to him by faith, which means that that we presently experience resurrection life in the Spirit, and we await the day when we will experience resurrection life in all its fullness in our resurrection bodies. That's the promise of the gospel, that Jesus is going to return, God's people are going to rise from the dead. We need to learn to, to see differently. We need to trust in Christ, our victor, And we need to know that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. You know, David didn't come at Goliath with worldly strength. He came trusting in God's power. And Jesus says to his disciples, clearly, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that that doesn't mean that we don't have many good God-given abilities. It doesn't mean that we can't do amazing things from the perspective of this life. But it does mean... uh, a number of things. One, that, that the present, even the present good that we do is only by God's power, whatever that might look like. But more importantly, we can do no spiritual good. We can do no eternal good. We can do no enduring good, right? That all our, all our talents can do nothing worth doing apart from Jesus' blessing on our work, right? The, the best abilities we have are useless apart from God's blessing them. There's a the, the verse in the psalm, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, right? God must bless the work of our hands in order for them to lead to anything worthwhile, which means we, we bring our impotence to God even as we bring our strengths, because we recognize that that our strongest abilities are useless apart from him. So we need to to learn to see differently. We need to trust in Christ, our victor. We need to know that God's power is made perfect through our weakness. And we need to know that God's victory in us comes through suffering. You know, if we just applied the David and Goliath story straight to ourselves... We skipped Jesus, right? We just looked at David and Goliath. We, we might think, well, if we only have faith, we can defeat whatever Goliaths we might face, just like David. Or even if we know that really Jesus is the real David, not, not me, not you, uh, even if we know that, we might think, well, Israel followed after him and conquered the Philistines, 
Right? That, that must mean that we are now to conquer whatever we face. David's victory led to victorious Israelite living, right? Jesus' victory must lead to victorious Christian living. But the unlikely victory of the shepherd boy leads us to an even more unlikely victory of the cross. And Christ's victory, unlike David's, it's not a perfect picture of Jesus' work, Christ's victory, unlike David's, was through suffering and death. Life came through death. And so if Israel's victory followed David's and our victory follows after Jesus, suddenly the application of this story is about becoming a people that suffers well. We follow Jesus' victory, absolutely, which means we follow Jesus into suffering, knowing that through suffering, God brings the victory. I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 4 earlier. Uh, you can read through 1 Peter 4, verses 6 through 11 later. And just ask the question, what does it mean to resist the devil? According to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. And one part of it is to suffer in faith. To persevere in faith while suffering. It's, it's to not allow Satan to undercut your faith through the difficulties that you faith, face. To not allow Satan to lead you to despair through your trials. As we follow our unlikely hero, King Jesus, great David's greater son, we realize that victory over Satan comes through suffering well. Just as David stood in his faith, despite the giant that stood before him, despite the fact that it looked like the Philistines had won already, 40 days of backing down, right? 40 days of fear, David alone stands in faith. Can we stand in faith despite our suffering, despite our trials, even despite our struggles with sin, knowing that our King Jesus has defeated the enemy? You know, every aspect of life in a fallen world, all temptation, all suffering, all trials, all brokenness, all oppression, every aspect of life that might discourage us, that might bring fear, that might bring despair, right? The brokenness in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, right? The, the anger of your boss, the, the, the unfairness of your professors, right? The trials with your kids, whatever it might be. Every aspect of brokenness is something under which we are called to stand in faith. We are called to bear witness to the victory of Jesus. We're called to believe that Satan will not win in the end. And that faith that, that God wins, that faith that does not despair, that faith that will not give up no matter what, that faith which says with Job, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you, that faith uh, which says with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember that story, that even if God does not deliver us from the fiery furnace, yet we will not give in to Nebuchadnezzar. We will not worship his false gods because we have a God who can deliver us and might deliver us now, but will certainly deliver us on the last day. That faith that will not give in, that's the faith of David and the faith of Jesus who went to the cross and was willing to suffer and die, knowing that his father would not abandon him to the grave, 
but would raise him up again. That death does not have the last word. Now there's a, a danger here in, in talking about God's work in the past, God's story. There's a danger uh, in talking about it as if the story were over. But the story's not over. Right? God is still at work. Jesus is still at work. He, he has poured out his spirit on his people. He's promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age, which means that we, by faith, are now a part of God's story. We've entered into that story. Think of how different life would be if we move out in life, not in fear of death, not in despair of guilt and sin, not trembling before Goliath, but full of faith in our Savior. Let's walk by faith in the one who rose victorious and in the hope of our resurrection victory on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we, I confess how fearful I am so often, how discouraged I get, how much I want to run from the troubles and trials of life. And it's in part because I look at myself and, I, and for some reason I think I've got to fight it in my own strength, on my own. And I forget that I have a victor who has fought the battle for me in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Father, give us faith in him. Help us to, to see Jesus with the eyes of faith, to see Jesus risen from the dead and conquering, to see Jesus ascended to your right hand and seated on the throne and reigning over heaven and earth for us. And help us to walk by faith in him, our victor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.